patients reflect the views of their culture, their society, their families, and they often internalize that mental health conditions are a character flaw or something to be denied or embarrassed or ashamed uh, about. And you know, and I know that it's a medical condition, but people don't always feel that way. And particularly interacts with culture and race as we as a society really grapple with racial justice issues. We have to think about the fact that people who already experience discrimination are concerned about aligning themselves with a condition that is further marginalized. That's Mary Giliberti, Executive Vice President of Policy at Mental Health America. In this episode of Moving Medicine, guests discuss how physicians and other clinicians can be leaders in breaking the stigma around mental health. Mary Giliberti is joined by Dr. Surav Sengupta, Director of Training in Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, University of Buffalo School of Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. Dr. Tiffany Moore-Simas, Chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at UMass Memorial Medical Group. And Dr. Nancy Byatt, Medical Director of the Massachusetts Child Psychiatry Access Program. I'm your host, Todd Unger, Chief Experience Officer at the American Medical Association. Here's Mary Giliberti. I've been asked to start us off by talking from the patient and family perspective. I work at Mental Health America, which is a group that really focuses on the individual with a mental health condition. I also previously was the CEO of NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, which many of you know and works with families. So I'm gonna wear that hat today when I talk to you a little bit about that perspective. And I like to use some common words for stigma because I think if you went out there and asked people what's stigma, a lot of people don't talk about it that way. They talk about discrimination, shame, and blame. So those are the three concepts I'm going to talk about today, mostly focusing on the shame and blame because that's the, how patients and families experience things. So talking about discrimination to start us off, but my colleagues are going to talk even more about this. We know that you all here, and I want to thank you so much for being here. Um, you want the very best for your patients, or you wouldn't be doing this after a full day of seeing them, right? Um, and But you have a lot of structural discrimination, and that shows up in the education that you receive, where mental health and substance use is not always included, and then certainly in payment. And we know that mental health specialists but also the doctors that interact with them do not get compensated for that as a result of that discrimination or stigma. And I know my colleagues are gonna talk a lot more about how to address those issues. But I wanna focus on the shame and the blame, which is how the patients and families feel a little bit. Patients reflect the views of their culture, their society, their families, and they often internalize that mental health conditions are a character flaw or something to be denied or embarrassed or ashamed uh, about. And you know, and I know that it's a medical condition, but people don't always feel that way. And particularly interacts with culture and race as we as a society really grapple with racial justice issues. We have to think about the fact that people who already experience discrimination are concerned about aligning themselves with a condition that is further marginalized. And there's lots of intersectionalities between LGBTQ status, race, mental health, um, and other areas of people's lives. And then there's social determinants. So you may be saying to the patient, hey, you know, you should think about seeing a specialist. And in their mind, they're thinking, oh my goodness, another copay, another transportation problem. How am I gonna get there? Um, how am I gonna take time off of work? All those issues that play into those considerations. And then there's the blame 
part of it that people worry about. So they worry a lot that you as their physician are gonna look at them differently if you know that they have a mental health or a substance use condition. Some worry a lot that the practice won't continue seeing them. That's particularly something I've heard from people who have substance use conditions. They're worried about how the healthcare system is gonna treat them because now we have EHRs and that's great. We always say, hey, we're gonna treat the whole person. But what happens when someone goes to get treatment for a physical health condition and they're not treated as well because they can see that they have a mental health condition? I've had helpline calls. One of the things I used to do a lot of is take helpline calls of people who were really upset because they got to the hospital. And when they saw that they were taking medication for schizophrenia, all of a sudden they found themselves uh, treated like a criminal justice situation with someone outside their door and really not treated the same way. So those issues are in the back of people's minds. And then they're also concerned about what's gonna happen with the information outside the healthcare system. So will this get to criminal justice? Will this get involved in child protection? You know, will somebody else be notified? Immigration issues. So again, culture and race coming into all of that. So there's a shame piece of it. There's a blame piece of it that people really are concerned about. So how does that show up in the clinic? So think about if I'm coming and I have all these questions that I've been talking about, all these concerns swirling around in my head, and then you hand me some sheets and tell me to fill them out. Um, not answering any of those questions, not getting at any of those feelings. Similarly, sometimes people will do this and then they tell me later that they never heard back. They didn't even get any response to what they had uh, said on their screening. So, and then if someone's just referred out and no one really has a conversation with them, and I'm going to talk a little bit later about what people want when these uh, conditions are discovered, how does that make someone feel? So getting information from people about how it makes them feel, looking at data, particularly around race and ethnicity, can be helpful ways to address how things are working uh, in the clinic. We at MHA have a screening program, and I'm going to give you the website for that. But you can go on our website and take a screen. They're all validated. So they're PHQ-9s, GAD-7s, those kinds of screens. Kind of maybe you want to get some additional help and we'll offer some options. Um, and I think that that's important just to see the data there because sometimes we bring biases into what we're doing. Um, and the data tells us that people are really wanting to know and, and take action about some of these conditions. And again, I think this also is not always intuitive to those of us in the, in the healthcare field because the first one on the left says, make a phone call or get a referral. And you'll see there that, that pretty much uniformly, some a little bit more than others, but uniformly people weren't that keen on that one. Um, but the next one is just learn more. And that got a much higher response. Using digital tools came next and then getting using some worksheets and tools to get help. And I think that really, if you think back what I talked about, the shame, the blame, all those things that people are thinking about, it makes sense that a patient's on a journey. And when they discover that they have something, these are the kinds of steps that might move them uh, along that journey. And there's just something to be thinking about as we think about stigma and its role. So I wanna end on really a positive note, which is I think that this is a unique time with a tremendous amount of opportunity because the silver lining on COVID is it really has normalized the conversation around mental health. And I think that's very helpful because it's not seen so much as outside or something to be ashamed of. Everybody is experiencing anxiety. Everybody is dealing with this um, epidemic. And then you have people who um, are disproportionately 
feeling the impact and that's well known. And so having those conversations about grief and anxiety is more normalized. Um, and then in popular culture, we see lots of celebrities talking about this and we're seeing lots more conversation in community, whether that's in schools or it's in doctor's offices or you know, anywhere, faith communities, just being talked about in community. And then of course, what the rest of the presentation's about, there's so many opportunities uh, for people to get help and consultation. I think there's never been uh, more. Of course, we always need more than there is today, but there's really some great resources that we're excited to share with you. I just wanna close by saying you really are my heroes because as someone who works with all the patients and families and people who have these conditions, it's folks like you who are willing to take your time again uh, to help. It just makes a tremendous difference. So thank you very much. And I'll turn it over now to Dr. Sengupta. Thanks so much, Mary, and thanks for your work at Mental Health America and, and, and advocating for patients and families and their experiences um, in helping to live better lives. Um, you know, so uh, again, my name's Saraj Sengupta. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist in Buffalo, New York, um, and I wear a couple different hats. Um, so I'm the, the co-chair for the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry's Collaborative and Integrated Care Committee. Um, and I, I run um, an integrated care program where we have uh, psychiatrists and therapists and care coordinators embedded into primary care practices. Um, and then I do uh, a fair amount of medical education. I, I run our child psychiatry fellowship. So a lot of my kind of mental energy is spent kind of thinking about integrated care, behavioral health integration, and also kind of how we can help others, you know, be able to utilize it as much as we can. And so I, I wanted to just give a little bit of a kind of a, a sense of Kind of how we can navigate stigma, you know, kind of from the clinical perspective. I, I think part of it is we have to acknowledge that it's a little bit challenging to think about the idea of holding stigma against mental health, especially as physicians, as as different types of providers in the healthcare space. Um, you know, and, and and I think part of it's helpful is just to kind of take a look at some of the facts around it. Uh, we've we've been able to take a look at sort of challenging aspects of our practice before. You know, think about how we're better under, understanding sort of the role of implicit bias in, in medicine. Um, and and this is another area where if we just let's look at the facts. Like some mental health issues are becoming increasingly prevalent in the general population. They're more prevalent presentations in different kinds of care settings. But there's also some things that are different about it, right? You know, so mental health issues can kind of present as behaviors and those are things that we have a, a natural tendency to wonder, you know, how much of this is related to a, an illness or a disorder or how much is in the control of an individual. Um, and I think there's, that's a natural question for us to ask, but when we sort of are wavering within that, if we're wavering towards the side of something being in the control of an individual, that's also a place from which we can, you know, often have some, we can bring some judgment to that. Um, and also mental health issues impact others beyond just the patient. And this is probably true of many different types of conditions, um, but think about you know, families, caregivers, uh, the staff in your practice or your hospital, your other you know, colleagues in medicine. Um, sometimes they can have challenging experiences you know, working with you know, some of these individuals. And it can be challenging for us, not necessarily for us to feel something related to that, that can you know, subtly or maybe not so subtly contribute to some issues around stigma. And so one of the things I like to try to think about, and I, I try to think about this with my trainees, is kind of what are the differences in the ways we sort of feel comfortable asking about different types of things, right? So how comfortable do we feel about asking about physical health conditions compared to mental health conditions? Um, 
how, what's the difference in how comfortable we feel about talking about our own challenges, right? You know, I might say, oh, you know, I had a, a, a you know, a left knee replacement a couple of years ago. I'm doing fine now. Uh, whereas, am I going to say the same about, you know, trying to get through a depressive episode from the past? And you can make arguments. Well, that's more intimate information. That's more private. But at some level, there's, you know, we, there's some room for stigma to be a part of that. Another that I often try to bring up is what are the differences in what we laugh about? Um, and sure, we all get to, I think, have a little bit of a space, you know, to be able to vent and, and kind of release some steam, you know, when we're, you know, in a, in a challenging workplace. But I, I do sort of challenge folks to ask, you know, you know, how much we'll be laughing about, you know, someone struggling to manage a certain type of physical health condition versus someone struggling to manage a personality disorder or something along those lines. And, and I think we would be hard pressed not to find certain differences in those things. And in those differences, I think we can see, you know, some room for stigma to grow. And I think we need to, you know, potentially be a little bit more cautious about that. I, I still find it, it's often very challenging to have conversations, you know, um, just for myself or with colleagues about the concept of stigma. I think we're all coming to this place, you know, with the intent of being helpful to our patients. And so sometimes I think it helps to sort of break it down and take a look at, so, you know, we're talking about behaviors. What is the behavior? And I think one of the primary behaviors associated with stigma is avoidance. And that often one of the things we find ourselves doing is sort of not addressing these kinds of issues in a similar way that we might other sort of even challenging clinical issues that we come up against in practice on a daily basis. And so if we think about, you know, what are the components of avoidance? One of them is fear, right? The fear of the unknown, the fear of a big bad thing happening. Um, part of it is just simply a lack, a lack of knowledge, not really understanding what it is that I need to do next. And also just simply not having had an opportunity to really practice and do it before, right? So much of our training model is an apprenticeship model. And it's, fo it's focused on learning by doing. If I haven't done it before, how am I supposed to know how to manage it now? So let's just take a look at, at a couple of different you know, aspects of this. So with fear, we might be worried about, again, some of those big bad outcomes, the possibility that one of our patients might you know, be thinking about suicide or commit suicide, that they might get violent. Um, this is not necessarily always a, an accurate concern, but certainly one that can, can create a lot of fear within us as, as, as physicians. And there's liability concerns. Again, when we're not sure what to do, um, our, our sort of fear can take us to this place of, well, what if I get sued? I don't know what's gonna happen. And then within lack of knowledge and experience, let's take a look at a couple of different components here. Did we ever actually learn how to do this, right? So in medical school, in residency, did we actually get access to the knowledge of, you know, how do I treat this type of condition? How do I work with this type of patient? Um, okay, so maybe I didn't. Um, how the heck do I learn about it now, right? You know, um, in the midst of all the different types of continuing med medical education and maintenance and certification, all these things that we have to do, how are we supposed to find the energy and space to learn about new things um, that, you know, obviously are important, but how do I do it? And then how do you possibly address these things in the context of a, of a very busy clinical practice? All of you are, are busy, you know, doing the good work. Um, but to do some of this work involving, you know, behavioral health integration, working with folks with mental health issues, often it takes a different skill set, more time, more energy. So let's just take a look at a couple of examples of some of these um, kind of components. So specifically around the fear around suicide, I want to share with you a, just a very practical resource that I think a lot of my 
primary care colleagues have found very useful. This is the Suicide Prevention Resource Center, also called SPARC, um, and they have an, a wonderful uh, suicide prevention toolkit for primary care practices um, that gives access to just kind of clinical algorithms, logistics, and processes. So here's an example of a, a, a really a well-done sort of algorithm for how to look at high, moderate, and low-risk um, patients in terms of suicidality, right, in terms of some of the questions you might ask and just some of the step-by-step -step processes that we might need to engage in for someone who is at higher risk. Um, this is the kind of thing that, you know, when I'm thinking about how to help my staff, you know, better sort of and more calmly manage a patient with an acute medical issue, let's say, you know, how to respond to, you know, uh, chest pain. You know, we can also do, you know, exercises to help them figure out how to manage, you know, when someone calls in talking about acute suicidality as well. And that's one way to allay that fear. And then how about the lack of knowledge and experience? Um, you know, so in terms of addressing, you know, that issue of how do we do this in the context of the busy clinical practices, uh, as many of you know, there's so many different models out there in terms of ways that people have tried to find ways to collaborate and join behavioral health expertise within medical models. Um, folks have uh, taken a look at patient-centered medical homes. So the idea of creating, for instance, registries for folks that have depression, doing certain amounts of screening and outreach uh, for those types of patients. Behavioral health care managers, these are really wonderful folks that really can help to make sure that, you know, the information involved in, you know, patient care for folks with behavioral health issues flows um, or that they get the referrals to the right uh, and connections to the right resources they need to in the community. And beyond that, you have behavioral health consultants or integrated care therapists and psychiatrists. And this is where folks are actually uh, engaging in um, some, you know, direct care at the point of service in, you know, medical care environments. Um, but just giving you an example of the, the huge breadth of ways that, you know, folks throughout the entire country are taking a look at creatively addressing this issue of how do we manage to help these patients in the context of busy clinical practice, right? Sometimes it's just coordinating care and really developing closer relationships between behavioral health providers and medical providers, co-locating, getting in that same physical space, rubbing elbows, making it easier to have some of those quick conversations and, and handoffs of care, and then true integration where we're really breaking down those silos of information and, and care where we're working together. And then when it comes to workforce education and training, um, a couple of great examples looking at um, just good resources out there in the community. So in terms of pediatrics, um, so this is um, the pediatric access line, uh, Bob Hilt's uh, program out in Washington, out of Seattle Children's, where they have some great resources on, for instance, how to ma manage, you know, depressive symptoms in a young patient. And then, you know, for the adult world, a little bit more so, the AIMS Center, um, also out of Washington, um, but, you know, available for all, you know, to take a look at logistics and processes for how can you actually implement some of these types of programs in your practice. Um, and so it's a really a good font of information out there for everybody. So next, we'll, we'll have some folks that are going to really talk about just some success in terms of how they've been able to develop these kinds of programs. I'll turn it over to Dr. Byatt and Dr. Morsimus. Thank you. So um, I'm Nancy Bai. I'm a perinatal psychiatrist and um, uh, similar to Saraf, who spent most of my career focused on working to integrate um, care for mental health and substance use disorders into maternal and child health care settings, majority of that time being obstetric settings. And I'm here with Tiffany Morsimus and Obi-Juan, who I have worked with on a, a lot of these projects who will be speaking after me. 
So I think as you heard, um, I love the way Sarav put it, I mean, um, around avoidance, right? And when we think about stigma, a lot of what it can cause is avoidance. And, um, and it often leaves peri, and I'm gonna focus specifically on perinatal mental health, and it often leaves these conditions unaddressed with far reaching implications. So speaking of avoidance, this was a 19, in the 1950s when nobody even knew what postpartum psychiatric illness was. To the extent that my mom was actually to go, sent to go live on a farm with a family she'd never met for six months in her first year of life due to some unknown, still we don't understand what happened, psychiatric illness that my grandmother had. So I grew up kind of being really aware of the importance of maternal mental health and also of stigma and how not even acknowledging this can really have these far-reaching implications. You fast forward 60 years to when I was a consultation liaison psychiatry fellow at Brigham and Women's and you know, this woman presented to me, who I'm going to call Kai, and she presented in her second pregnancy and described her experience in her first pregnancy and really described that she began to have depression symptoms in pregnancy. She described that when she, when the baby was born, it hit her like a ton of bricks. She said the baby felt like an alien to her. And she really felt that she wasn't there during that baby's first year of life. And she had absolutely no idea that she had, she had absolutely no idea that she had depression. She had and she also didn't realize until she came out of it about a year and a half later that she wasn't herself and that that wasn't um, that that's not what motherhood is necessarily like for you know all the time and that we can expect to feel better. And you know, there was a few things that really struck me about this. One, no one ever asked her about whether she had depression. And she saw many providers during that time period that could have asked her about it, could have let her know this is common and could have also helped refer her for treatment. And if we think about diabetes as a parallel, that would never happen, right? If you think about diabetes in pregnancy, depression is actually twice as common as diabetes in pregnancy. With diabetes, we screen, we, we address it and we make sure we refer. So if we think about the, the um, maternal child healthcare settings, there's so many opportunities to dismantle stigma against mental health within these healthcare systems. And we can do that by integrating care in and prioritizing this as much as we do physical health. Medicine doesn't stand still and neither do we. AMA members don't just keep up with medicine, they shape its future. Help move medicine, join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash moving medicine. So why does this occur? I think, you know, Mary in the, in the first talk outlined this really well. You know, she talked about how patients are feeling, you know, patients feel ashamed, they feel discriminated against. And then providers avoid it, as Sarah said, they avoid it. And why do they avoid it? Because they don't have the knowledge, they don't have the experience, and they also are afraid. They don't want it. We actually, when we first started doing research on this, we had a, one of the focus groups, one of the providers said, we asked them, are you suicidal, are you homicidal? And we, they, and we hope they say no to all of it because we don't know what to say. They want to do the right thing, but they're afraid and they don't have the knowledge or the skills to be able to address this, especially obstetric providers who this has not traditionally been a part of their training. And then the systems, as Mary alluded, you know, talked about this earlier, and then their systems aren't integrated. And a lot of this is all driven by stigma. We haven't, you know, mental health hasn't been prioritized in um, as part of medical care as much as some of the other specialties have. So it ha you, you get this system where women aren't disclosing symptoms or seeking care. And then you have unprepared providers um, with limited resources and unprepared systems. So of course you're gonna get limited or no engagement in treatment and then you're gonna get poor outcomes. 
So if we can build frontline provider capacity to get over those some of the things Sarav talked about, build their skill set so they're not afraid, build their knowledge, and then give them experience, we can then integrate mental health care into these settings and decrease stigma. And the goal, if we can do that, then we can also shift to a strength-based perinatal care model. So I'm going to give an example of there's many many wonderful, um, you know, as, as Saurabh talked about integrated care models, and I'm going to talk about um, one specifically, which is McPAP for Moms, a program I've, I founded in direct. It's called, and it stands for the Massachusetts Child Psychiatry Access Program for Moms. So it really has three core components, education, consultation, and resource and referrals. So we go out, we do trainings, and we train providers. How do you talk to women so they don't feel like, I hope they say no to all of it because I don't know what to do. So we can help build this efficacy on how do you have these conversations. And also, what do you do if someone screens positive? And how do you have a strength-based discussion? We also do consultations. So we do that by telephone and face-to-face. -face. They can call us, we can answer questions. And then we provide resources and referral to help them navigate through that complicated mental health system. And throughout this whole process, we're engaging providers and patients. So I'm gonna give an example. I'm gonna go back to Kai and talk about how it could have been different through our program. So what we do is we train providers and in our, we have toolkits and algorithms, and we, and in that, we recommend screening twice in pregnancy, once postpartum. So, go back, going back to Kai, for example, her OB would have, could have screened her in the first trimester and let her know, depression's twice as common as diabetes. We're here to help you, and this is going to be part of your care, and we're going to continue to ask these questions throughout your pregnancy because your mental health is a, is, a, is an important part of your obstetric care. And then if she screened positive, they could have had a conversation with her, offer her treatment. And if they didn't know what to do, they could call McPat for moms and they can, we can help hold their hand and help them figure out how to manage, um, how to either start a medicine or do a referral. If she needed a therapy referral, one of our resource and referral specialists could have called Kai and referred her to treatment in the community. And if the OB didn't know what to do and felt uncomfortable um, after a phone consultation, we can see her for one-time consult. And we can usually get people in for that within a couple of weeks. So that kind of gives a high-level overview of how, you know, Kai's situation could have been different if the care had been integrated. And throughout that, we were prioritizing her mental health, thus decreasing stigma and making it part of whole health. And one of the things that we've seen happen as we've done this is that as we build frontline provider capacity, we, see, we, we have seen in Massachusetts the culture shift. Our utilization data of our program shows this. Providers are calling about more complicated, complex illness. We started with depression and we've moved to, you know, now they're calling about bipolar disorder. We had a substance use expansion and we're also focusing on, you know, response to COVID-19 and health equity. I, the, the intersectionality between the um, discrimination and trauma people experience around trauma in general, and then also discrimination on mental health. And then you get other forms of discrimination, particularly for communities that have been marginalized or underserved, you get this intersectionality that's, that, that we are working to proactively um, address to make sure that people that, um, to do the best we can so that people experience more barriers to care are, that we're working to engage them and, de and, and um, you know, dismantle all the barriers there as well. And I'm pleased to tell you that we have 15 access programs that are modeled off this throughout the country that all aim to do this. And if any of you are interested and want to learn more about whether you have a program in your state, you can go on our website and we have all those programs listed. Also, Postpartum Support International has a national alliance. And if you throughout the country you can call if you have a pregnant or postpartum woman um, that you would like to get consultation regarding, you can call PSI and they can, you can speak with a perinatal psychiatrist who can help answer any of your questions.
And so in summary, you know, if we can integrate, you know, mental health care into maternal child health care, it can help us provide whole health so that we're thinking of it like diabetes, you know, that forward screen, it's addressed and we follow her until treatment remission, just like we do for other medical um, illnesses. And if we can do that using a trauma-informed strength-based approach, we can also shift it. So for example, so instead of when we see people, we're often asking, and I know I was taught to do this, even in my residency, to be like, what's wrong with you? And we were like problemless and we're very often problem-focused in medicine, but to change the conversation to what happened to you and, it's, and how have you managed to cope with it? And instead of, for example, saying, why are you late for the appointment? Saying, must've been hard to get her. How did you manage to get her despite all those challenges? So really doing it in a strength-based approach. Now I'm gonna um, transition to um, Tiffany Moore-Simus, the um, OB-JOAN who I collaborate with on many things, including McPap for Moms, who's gonna talk more about what you do at the practice level to actually integrate these kind of things into your workflow. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to you and to be with you here today. You know, uh, Nancy talked a lot about why it's important for us to address mental health in this sort of pregnancy and postpartum time period. And there are a lot of reasons to support why this is an ideal period to do it and why it should be quote unquote easy to do it, right? So, you know, women will have 12 to 15 visits in a nine month period of time during pregnancy. They'll have then, you know, visits with in the postpartum period, and then they'll have visits with their a pediatric provider for well child visits. And there's opportunities at all of those points uh, to screen a woman and engage her in care. And then if you look at the literature and you talk to women, they in fact welcome the opportunity to talk to obstetric providers. Obstetric providers have a lot of really sort of intimate conversations with their patients and patients are generally comfortable talking to them. So there's great patient acceptability around this. And so in that there is an opportunity to decrease stigma. However, that avoidant behavior that uh, Sarav talked about, that lack of training, the lack of guidance and recommendations until recently, really made, has made it such that many OBGYNs don't actually see mental health within their scope of practice, and it hasn't really been a part of our professional identity. And so when you take that in the context of not being comfortable with it, not being, you know, it part of your professional identity, not setting up your office in a way to address it, not being reimbursed in a way to set up your office to address it. It just contributes to the stigma, the shame, the blame, and the avoidant uh, behavior. So what has really made a very significant difference in the past five years, and it really has been that recent, is that you know perinatal mental health has been recognized as a public health problem. And by public health problem, I mean one of the most common complications of pregnancy in the postpartum period, and a complication that is universally identified as being um, associated with maternal mortality and a preventable cause of maternal mortality. So women should not die of mental health conditions in pregnancy and postpartum, certainly given all this contact with the medical community and many of us on the call would say ever, um, but yet it happens, right? So what has happened in the past five years is many of the professional societies and the governmental organizations you see on the slide there have come forward with very clear recommendations for universal screening of pregnant and postpartum women using a standardized tool. So that's great. That is a first 
step and that universal screening, providing that opportunity to everyone is an opportunity to decrease stigma. Beyond that, many of the recommendations come not just with the recommendation for screening, but the ability to take it to the next step, the subsequent assessment, the connecting with treatment, the ability to refer, and being able to do that, to do it seamlessly, is an important step in, the, in decreasing stigma. However, what often happens is people adhere to the recommendation to screen, oh, you're not depressed, are you? Right. So right, there's that, you know, please tell me you're not depressed. I'm going to ask it in a way that's not going to give you an opportunity, not going to open the door to give you an opportunity to say it. Uh, and or if, you know, screen positive, then there's those sort of stigmatizing, shaming, blaming conversations around but you just had a baby, you should be so happy, or, you know, you don't want medication, you're pregnant, are you? And so the, it's not just enough to screen and to have systems, it's also incredibly important to use that strength-based language to be able to have a conversation that is non-stigmatizing, that is not shaming, that is not blaming, and to not avoid it, to be able to address it. So one of the reasons why, um, you know, women find themselves in that situation with OBGYNs is because of that avoidant behavior, because of the lack of training. Most OBGYNs out in practice now have trained pre those guideline recommendations, pre, you know, those recommendations and pre the recognition of this as a, you know, significant, you know, cause for complications and cause of maternal mortality. So you're dealing with avoidant providers who are uneducated in this in some ways and it wasn't part of their professional identity. So Sharab talked about this, right? The not having been trained, the not having been educated is a huge component to why there's stigma here. And so training and toolkits are incredibly important. A one-time e-module, you know, a one-time maintenance of certification, a one-time is not, um, you know, enough in and of itself. So these algorithms, these toolkits are incredibly important. And it's also not enough, as we've heard from providers, to just give the algorithms, but to also help, and these are publicly available, um, you're happy, you know, you're welcome to download these, but also within them to help give that language, to help provide some of that strength-based um, conversational language to help have these conversations between the um, provider and um, the, the patient. You know, beyond the training of that individual provider or the individual providers within the practice, it is incredibly important to look at the practice itself, right? The, the opportunity to destigmatize, to create an environment that allows a woman to engage uh, and be comfortable um, with you know, answering the screener and being and able to engage in care really starts from the beginning, right? The admin, the um, you know, person at the front desk is that the person who's administering the screener? How do they do that? Where does she do it? Is she doing it in the waiting room? Is she doing it in a private, um, you know, exam room? How was that given to her? The person that receives the screen from her. Um, what do they do when they receive it? How do they address it? When they score it, how are they doing that? How do they respond to that score? If it's not the provider that sees the score, how is the provider being made aware of it? And when the provider goes back to the patient, what's the conversation around that? And what's, you know, what is the language that's being used? It's incredibly important. We have engaged with a lot of practices in the past that, you know, the recommendations came out, they instituted screening. And as Dr. Byatt said, they were like, please, please, please let her not screen positive. Because although they implemented the screening, 
there weren't the downstream, um, you know, steps that were implemented and thought through in the practice. Uh, and so incredibly important. So the perinatal psychiatry access programs that we heard Nancy talk about, you know, address fortunately and very thankfully a lot of providers have, you know, really, um, you know, appreciated these access programs address that, well, once she screens positive, if I'm uncomfortable, if I don't know what to do, I can pick up the phone and call that lifeline of the access program and get some guidance from somebody else to help me walk through. Because when I was a provider, I didn't train in this, right? And so I'm not comfortable. So the access programs really help provide support and, you know, decreasing the barrier of that avoidant behavior. So support and helping to know how to assess the patient, the, um, the support and helping to know how to treat, what treatment options are, options are there, and how do you deliver that information in a way that it is strength-based, shared decision-making. It equally balances um, the risks of untreated versus treated disease and really helps support a woman saying she deserves to be better. She deserves to be treated uh, and then following it through from there. So, you know, beyond the toolkits, beyond the, um, you know, access programs, other approaches to helping decrease stigma is really in, as I went through somewhat already, having a step-by-step -step approach to implementing how to integrate mental health into obstetric care. And that happens at the screening level, it happens at the assessment and treatment level, it happens at monitoring. And the goal is to really engage not just the patient in the process, but the entirety of the practice with the um, aim of improving outcomes. And as the you know, Council on Patient Safety and Women's Healthcare notes in their patient safety bundle around this, really it's doing this in that non-judgmental culture of safety where we really look at mental health is holistically part of the care that we provide in pregnancy in the postpartum period. Uh, and so we have these implementation protocols to help practices step-by-step -step walk through this and not just start screening and then hope not, you know, she doesn't screen positive, but really before you even start screening, really walk through the whole thing and what would it look like if, what would it look like if, what do we need to have in place um, to really set up the practice successfully to support the patient successfully. So, you know, I think if you look past over the past five years, there's been significant progress made in all of this. There's still a long way to go, because if we look at the model that Sharav talked about, where we talked about, you know, coordinated care, co-located care, integrated care, at best, we are still kind of in the center of this triangle. Yes, we're focused on the pregnant person and the infant. Yes, in some cases, we wrap her in the care team, the, you know, the settings, um, and sometimes, sometimes there's that collaboration integration. But until we really go out and broaden the scope and are able to bring in social determinants of health, are able to bring in structural in, uh, inequities and biases, not just bring them in, but be able to address them, um, we won't really be able to knock down the stigma completely. So we've made a lot of progress and we have a lot of progress uh, to go. Next slide. And so I think there is tremendous um, strength in increasing the frontline provider's capacity to provide mental health care, to integrate that into obstetric care in the case specifically of perinatal mental health. And that in and of itself will decrease stigma. And so that's, these are some great initial steps. We still have a way to go. All right, so let's start with a couple of questions, but I'm gonna start us off with um, a question about, you know, how can physicians deal with potential stigma in the profession. 
wants to start us off. Mayor, are you referring to stigma within the profession as far as addressing our own mental health? Or are you referring to, I think, well, I think that's part of it, but I'm wondering about stigma around us all, you know, um, or around, or maybe it's both, because I actually think they go hand in hand. Great. Why don't you address it that way? Okay. All right. So I, I'll give you an example. Like I was recently talking with, um, you know, I can't tell you how many colleagues I have that have told me, oh, you know, like a psychiatrist who's like prescribing themselves antidepressants because they don't want to go see a psychiatrist or, you know, people like not telling people about their kid's psychiatric illness because they're embarrassed. It's like, if it was if your kid had asthma, if your kid had a malignancy, you would just talk about it. You'd be like, I can't come in because my kid's getting chemotherapy. And you would tell people, I gotta go and see my dentist. So I think that part of how we do this is by talking about our own, We this touches all of us, this touch, whether it's our family members or ourselves. And I think part of it is that we need is us walking the walk. Um, so I think that's, that, that's one piece of it. And I think a lot of the other piece is how we talk about this. So I was taught, I think in my residency, you know, we'd like, you know, I remember, you know, people would say, oh, he's like a 64 year old schizophrenic. No, he's a 64 year old male who's been diagnosed with schizophrenia. They're, the person is not their ill, the illness does not define them. And we need to stop talking about people that way. And I think, you know, Sarav alluded, you know, mentioned this earlier with how we write notes in the charts, how we talk to people, how we define, we use so much pejorative language. And we also, and it's, it, it's really ingrained in our culture. So I think that's one thing that there's a lot to be done around is how we talk about these things, how we address our own mental health um, openly and our own, you know, how it, it touches all of our lives. And I think the other piece is when we talk to patients directly, we can really change the language. So um, for example, instead of asking someone like, you know, it brings you in what's wrong, but like, what's going well for you? And how did you manage to get through that? You know, instead of like, you know, oh, you're there, there's ways you can just use very subtle wording changes to come at it from a strength based approach. And I think that's really, really critical. And that's what it's what the patients need. It's what our colleagues need. And we could talk about it with each other that way, too. One little comment on that, which is that I think often addressing stigma, I, I don't think we should we shouldn't fool ourselves in saying that it's it's sort of it's free. It's easy. It can have a cost, frankly, you know, and I think the question is just, is it a cost worth bearing? And I, and for me, it's sort of the, it's the, the mirror test. Can I look myself in the mirror at the end of the day? You know, and oftentimes, sometimes, you know, confronting or talking about some of these things, it can have a, a quick interpersonal cost, but you can work through that. You know, we're physicians, we can, we can, you know, heal that little rupture that comes up, but there's a lot of good that comes from, from making that sort of like, well, what did you mean by that? Um, and having that quick interaction. Um, but I think the cost can be worth it. When dealing with maternal anxiety depression, is a group model better for patient acceptance or an individual model? I think that really depends. I think it depends on the individual. Some, I think groups can be very powerful and they can be really, you know, people can be, uh, have an experience that's very empowering. Um, at the, a lot of people, I know at McPat for Moms, we refer to groups, we refer to individual therapy. The vast majority of people we find prefer individual therapy because it, it seems like an easier pace to start a lot. Because if you may want to go into one person and tell them what you're, how you're doing, but like to go in and tell a group, it can be kind of feel, um, can, can feel overwhelming for some people. And um, so I think it really depends on the, on, on the person's preference. And I think the most important thing is to ask people what they prefer and, 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 and then refer them that way. So I think it's really individualized. That's definitely been my experience working with 
individuals and, and uh, families. You know, asking always makes a lot of sense. One of the questions was, is there a difference in the perinatal results of two evaluations during pregnancy compared to one? I think this is referring to screening. Uh, and so if you look at ACOG's guidance, the recommendation is screening in the perinatal period, which of course would be pregnancy or postpartum. Uh, the most recent update was, you know, if you screen in pregnancy, please make sure to do so again postpartum. Um, you know, U.S. Private Services Task Force says and, so pregnancy and postpartum, and the, you know, Council on Patient Safety recommends twice in pregnancy and once postpartum. And I know our group has looked at this pretty, um, thoroughly and informed uh, by the work of Kathy Wisner had really recommended um, screening at the initial OB visit really to pick up the people that are coming into pregnancy with a not yet recognized illness, uh, screening in the late pregnancy period uh, to identify those that have, you know, picked it up, who have, you know, had onset of disease or exacerbation uh, over the course of pregnancy and then, you know, at postpartum to pick up that late onset pregnancy or early, um, early postpartum. And then, of course, it continues on uh, into the pediatric period, you know, the well child visits, uh, because often a woman's um, care with her OBGYN ends uh, somewhere at six to 12 weeks postpartum, but yet their risk of postpartum depression extends well beyond that. So continuing to screen beyond that. And the next question really talks about those barriers that I think um, Dr. Sengupta, you were talking about some of them earlier, but they're asking if HIPAA interferes with mental health professionals communicating with primary care uh, about how to help a patient. So the role there of um, you know, these laws that sometimes are designed to protect people, but can also be uh, barriers. Absolutely, it can. It can get in the way of, you know, kind of useful flow of information, you know, that really, frankly, patients and families want um, uh, that uh, we can't always uh, kind of facilitate, you know, due to kind of at least perceptions of what HIPAA says and, and, and the way we're supposed to work with it. Um, for us, you know, in our programs, the way we try to we try to really upfront be a little bit, um, you know, just really on top of our P's and Q's about getting all of our releases of information signed at the beginning of any kind of engagement so that we can really recognize that we've got a free flow of communication between, you know, primary care medical providers and behavioral health providers. But that takes, that's a part of the logistical sort of workflow that you have to work and sort of spend some time and energy on upfront for sure. Mm -hmm. So the next question is sort of saying that we have all framed in our discussions stigma as lack of time, lack of knowledge, lack of care plan, those kinds of things. But this questioner says, you know, what about unconscious bias or stigma? How do we uncover that um, around those providers who may not know that they're stigmatizing uh, patients? And I certainly have seen that with individuals and families going to someone who really doesn't recognize that what they're doing is, is stigmatizing. So any thoughts about how to uncover and address uh, bias that you might not recognize as a provider? I, I think that um, it, I think it's somewhat how we think about all implicit bias because you know part of it's to be an upstander and like you know it's hard but I think if you you know I was on call the other day and I one of one of our residents called and, and one of the um, one of the uh, internal medicine uh, 
if it, the internal medicine resident spoke about a, a psychiatry patient and basically and basically said to the resident, like, if this was a different patient, then I would basically like follow the standard of care. But because this is a psychiatry patient, like I'm not going to follow the standard of care, like pretty. And the resident, we were like, OK, well, what are we going to do about this? Because this I mean, it was it was very it wasn't implicit bias. It was explicit. But we thought about, well, this is because she was a resident. This person was much more senior and actually. Um, and so we talked about, well, this is important and this is really, so we talked about how to address that. And I think that that's an extreme example, but stuff like this happens on a continuum all the time, every day and all, and a lot of the uh, medical world. So I think it's, it's, it's talking with our colleagues and having those difficult conversations, just as we are now when we're having conversations about, about implicit bias as it relates to racism and, and these other hard conversations, but we need to have them. And, um, and I think part of it's, um, doing that and also being role models for our medical colleagues because if we talk about them in a strength-based way then it will it will it will have a trickle effect the other thing i would say this is um, somewhat tangential but i feel I, I feel i feel like i really want to say this is so um you know what we we talked a lot about the avoidant behavior um, that, you know, sort of stigma coming out as avoidant behavior the opposite of that also is um the feeling less comfortable can come out as alarmist behavior too. So the woman that presents um, and, you know, is saying that she's having intrusive thoughts or thoughts to, you know, harm the baby or what have you, and is immediately like whooshed off to emergency mental health care where, you know, her baby is, you know, oh, yeah. she is, you know, feared uh, that the baby is going to be taken away or it is minimally it's separated from her and not able to breastfeed or, you know, and so like, there's sort of avoidance or lack of knowledge or comfort can come in two extremes. One is avoidance and one is sort of this like hyper response to it. Yeah. Uh, and that hyper response is not just stigmatizing and you know, shaming and blaming in the moment that can really have significantly long-term effects that can be aversive to her you know, getting care even when it's recognized she might need care. Uh, and so I think that it's important to recognize that also. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. And, um, this question was burnout, depression, and suicide in physicians is very high. Um, how do you address stigma to improve access for this population, recognizing that some states ask about this in license renewal? And um, this person wanted to know, you know, is, is that being addressed or how should people be thinking about the issues, the stigma within the profession, another example of stigma within the profession? Mm -hmm. This is an area I feel very passionately about. I've, I've uh, educated and I've written about my own sort of mental health struggles as well. You know, and I, I think that just going back to what Nancy was saying earlier, we have to walk the walk here. Um, you know, we have to be open about, you know, situations where we've been able to, you know, confront this, you know, acknowledge we have this issue and be able to get help for it. I think it also means we have to be good helper colleagues. You know, when we notice a, a colleague that's struggling, we have to be interested. I think sometimes we tend to duck our heads to that. Um, and we have to be also willing to, to be helpful and find ways to get support for our colleagues, you know, to pitch in if someone's having a difficult time to help them get connected with care. Um, it can be very, very challenging for physicians to get access to care because they're so worried about, you know, the stigma against that. Um, and, and I think lastly, I think it's also, it, it does a disservice to physicians when we talk about just depression and burnout and we don't take a look at the systemic issues that contribute to that. You know, some of the, the incredible burdens related to kind of paperwork and bureaucratic sort of aspects of medicine 
you know, that this is not the reason that people went into medicine. And as they're struggling to deal with sort of the, the existential crisis of being a physician in the 21st century, um, you know, if we just ignore that aspect and just say, okay, deal with your depression and burnout, um, I think we're missing some big opportunities to improve, you know, how physicians are doing, but also, you know, frankly, patient care and how the, the, the culture is doing as well. This question was for Drs. Byatt and, and more Simus. Can you talk more about how to assess disease severity of a patient who screens positive? Are there tools available to help physicians when someone screens positive and figuring out the severity? We actually just developed a tool to do exactly that. <laughs> um, it was one of the tools that Tiffany showed. So we, um, so I think, you know, the screenings tools are great. They are screening tools. They're not like, I think I worry that there's a knee jerk to, oh, you have a positive, you know, scale, like, you know, your screen was positive. Let's give you an SSRI. So there's their tools. They, you know, some of the tools can help you, you know, determine severity. They can also be great for follow-up because of like, for example, if the screen, if the score is going down, then it tells you that hopefully they're getting better, but they need to be accompanied by an assessment. And we actually, um, if you, um, I'm sure Tiff, our slides will be available. There's a there's a link to one of them, and we have a th on it. We actually have a toolkit that has screening tools for depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, and PTSD all in together. And then we have an accompanying toolkit that talks about how do you assess that severity. And I'd say generally what you want to be thinking about for when women are pregnant with postpartum is what um, is you want to be asking, you know, what's going to happen if this woman doesn't get treatment? And that kind of tells you about the severity. So for example, and then you're asking, how is it impacting your functioning? So for example, is she able to take care of her baby? Is she, is she getting through her daily activities or is she getting through them, but it's taking her a ton of effort and it's hard. So you really want to be getting at the functioning and a lot of a helpful way to do it is look at, you know, how she's feeling about herself. Is she feeling hopeless? Is she feeling helpless? Is she feeling bad about herself? And does she feel like that some of the times? Are they fleeting or does she feel like that most of the time or, or all the time? So those I think are just some very high level things about how to get at severity. Um, but you know, please take a look at our toolkit and hopefully that will be helpful because we, we tried to summarize that in a, in a, um, in a way that's, um, that's accessible for all of you. Succinct, hopefully succinct and user-friendly. Yes, exactly. Thank you. That was Mary Giliberti and Drs. Tiffany Moore-Simas, Nancy Byatt, and Saurav Sengupta. I'm Todd Unger, and this is Moving Medicine, a podcast by the American Medical Association. You can also subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts anywhere you listen to yours, or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.